Welcome to the latest episode of Comic Book Physics, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we're taking a revisit for Pym Particles. We first discussed size-changing heroes way back at the start of the series. And when we did so, I promised that there was more to look at in the way Matt Fraction's Fantastic Four and FF runs concluded, but that I didn't want to get into that immediately because it got into spoilers for how that series ended. And while the last paper issue was out, and the last issue was out in digital, it hadn't been collected in any forms yet. It has since been collected in trade paperback, in omnibus, it's on Marvel Digital Unlimited, so if you want to read it and not get into the spoilers, then you've had plenty of opportunity. If you haven't read it yet, and this is your reminder, well, you can pause the podcast, I'll be here when you get back. So in issue 16 of the second volume of FF, Scott Lang uses pin particles in a way that nobody else has done before. And he reveals it's because he's discovered that pin particles operate along three axes in the way that they manipulate people. And this is something that he investigated because he didn't understand why, you know, Ant-Man retained his full strength when he shrunk, but yet when he grew, he became stronger and more durable. And he realized that beyond size, pin particles can actually manipulate things on three axes of size, strength, and durability. So when Wonder Man was created with a pin particle process, Size changing wasn't part of it, but the strength and durability axes were used. And when Ultron tried using pin particles in his creation of the vision, the strength axis was used and that became the density powers. So from a purely artistic standpoint, it was actually a rather brilliant idea and explained all the inconsistencies that we've seen in the way pin particles have been represented to date. But just because it works artistically doesn't mean it works scientifically. Just look at the Silver Age Green Lanterns difficulty with the color yellow. So the question is, can this three-axis model work for actual particles? Well, different particles can have different properties, but can a single particle or family of particles do what the PIM particles claim to do? If they're going to have so many different effects, you'd think that they need to be completely different particles, because these seem to be independent effects. Well, when you get into quantum mechanics and particle physics, things actually get rather weird. There have been thousands of particles identified in nature. An elementary particle is one that cannot be divided any further. So there are in total 36 such known elementary particles. Electrons are one example of an elementary particle. So most theorists do not believe that electrons have any internal structure. And experimentalists have never seen evidence of any. Protons and neutrons, however, are each composed of three quarks. The six quarks that have been found in nature are named up, down, strange charm, and then the other two are either top and bottom or truth and beauty, depending on which continent's convention you choose to follow. Each also has a corresponding antiparticle. So protons are made up of two quarks and one down quark, while the antiproton are two anti-up quarks and one anti-down quark. Neutrons are two down and one up, antineutrons are two anti-down, one anti-up, and so forth. They're examples of baryons, which are composed of three matter quarks, Antibaryons are composed of three antimatter quarks. Masons can also be made up of quarks, but masons will always have one matter and one antimatter quark involved. But these combinations typically have one set of properties. So if you combine two down quarks and one up quark in one way, you will always have a neutron, and all neutrons will have a very specific mass, that zero electric charge, at least net electrical charge, and they will have the same lifetime in a vacuum 
So in other words, a free neutron or a neutron just left to itself that's not a part of an atomic nucleus will eventually decay into a proton, an electron, and an electron antineutrino. Well, the neutral kaon particles, or the k-mesons, throw all of that out the window. There are two, and they are each other's antiparticles, although we can't say that one is matter and the other is antimatter, as they each have one matter quark and one antimatter quark. One is the down-anti-strange combination, while the other is the strange anti-down. The masses, electric charges, and most other properties are consistent between them. What's not consistent is the lifetime for radioactive decay. So a lot of people have heard about half-lives. The half-life is the amount of time it takes on average for half of a large sample of that type of particle to radioactively decay into new particles. Most research physicists don't use half-lives per se when they talk about the lifetime. Instead of being the proportion of 1 over 2, it's the proportion of 1 over e, where e is a fundamental constant in mathematics that's closely tied to logarithms and calculus. It's an irrational number, which means we can't exactly give it a value in any way other than e, but it's approximately 2.78. So when they talk about lifetimes, it's not going to 1 over 2, it's going to the proportion of 1 over e or roughly 1 over 2.78. But typically, this lifetime is consistent, regardless of what the particles decay into. So the neutron has only one decay channel, that proton-electron-electron-antineutrino combination that we previously discussed. Other particles have more than one decay channel, meaning that they can produce more than one possible combination of particles after the decay. But all of those decays happen with the same lifetime. The neutral k-mesons, or the k-ons, were the first particles found to break this rule of thumb. They have two different decay channels with two different lifetimes. So one lifetime is about 60 times longer than the other, and they produce two different sets of particles as a result. And decades after the discovery, we think we understand why. The particulars are difficult to explain in a short podcast format. We'd have to get into eigenvectors and eigenvalues and eigenstates, and a lot of that is really math manifesting in reality, more so than an idea about reality manifesting in math, which means going through it in detail would also mean explaining linear algebra, matrix multiplication, eigenvalues, eigenstates. To me, it says there's more to the story than we figured out because we don't have a physical reason driving this property. We've got a mathematical reason. Ultimately, though, it amounts to saying that the particles have properties that are described by two different sets of information. So the range of behaviors, when you try to represent them graphically, have to be represented on two axes and not one. So there is precedent in nature for particles like the pin particles to be described by more than one axis. I'm not personally aware of any particles that require three axes to be described instead of just one or two, but I'm also not aware of any reason that it wouldn't be possible to have particles described by three or four or five, especially when we're talking about something artificially created. Now, creating something that complicated would likely take more energy than anything Hank Pym would be able to cobble together in his lab. But with that one caveat, it is technically possible, so I'm going to give Matt Fraction's interpretation of pin particles from his last issue of the second volume of FF a pass. As always, suggestions for new topics and feedback can be sent to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. Feel free to rate this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you listen to. It really does help the shows get noticed. And finally, thank you for listening.